Disruption comes in many shapes and sizes, from industry-defining innovations through to global pandemics. And as organizations adapt to the new normal of post-COVID life, the need to understand your business and make data-driven decisions has only become more important. I'm Steve Dunn, and on today's Workday podcast, I'm delighted to be joined by Kate Russell, technology journalist, author, speaker, gamer, and streamer, where we'll be talking about all things tech and trying to make sense of how technology will help businesses thrive in the post-pandemic world. Kate, welcome. It's great to have you on the show today. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Brilliant. But I've got a confession to make, Kate. Before I dive into the questions, I am going to shamelessly plug the um, Workday Industry Insights event that I know you're going to be joining us for. Um, our listeners can hear from you and a range of experts at the Digital Experience event on November the 18th. Um, and the listeners can find out more from workday.com forward slash industry insights. And that is my shameless plug done and dusted, Kate. Yeah, well done. <laughs> so onto the onto the action, into the action we go. And now I'm a big fan, Kate, but for our listeners who maybe haven't seen your work on BBC Click or followed your career, can you just open up and just give us a bit about your background and, and how that's uh, how that's emerged? Sure. I've actually been reporting on technology since 1995, which makes me older than Facebook, <laughs> professionally <laughs> speaking. Um, but it's been fascinating. I started out as a games journalist, actually, and, and my love affair with technology began um, way back in 1984 with the BBC Micro. Um, I was 15 at the time. My parents bought one for my brother because he was doing computer studies at school. I Honestly, I think I originally got into computers as a way to annoy my brother. Um, but then I realized that computers were much more interesting than the home economics and needlework that I was being taught at the girls' school that I went to. Um, but yeah, I started out as a games journalist in 1995 and then moved into more, um, I guess, serious journalism, uh, joining the BBC around 16 years ago. I've been um, a solid part of the team on the BBC Click show, which shows around the world to 50 million homes or something ridiculous. Um, and I've had the opportunity to travel the world and see all of the latest cutting edge technology long before it sort of gets into the mainstream media um, and meet some really fascinating and interesting people. Um, as a result, I've really been an evangelist for technology, using technology, particularly in small and medium sized businesses back in the sort of the, I guess, the early 2010s it started to become accessible there started to be resources being put online that were really useful and in many cases free and back then I remember thinking you know you have all of these multinationals who've got these huge marketing budgets and and they're able to get out there and sell their product but now actually there's a a place where small independent business people can compete and um, they just need the right message and of course we were talking about social i'm talking about social media so mm -hmm. i started to sort of uh, you know look and and at that time as well a lot of people were starting to develop open source and free tools that, that helped you with productivity team management um, and in my role with the bbc i was sort of the website person so that back in the in the days when really it was hard to find good content online. My job was to sit and look for stuff and then share it with our audience. Uh, and so I sort of just having spent so much of my working day tasked with looking for just cool stuff online, it's given me a really unique perspective on, on what there, what is available and how it can be used. So I guess I've been kind of evangelizing to get more small businesses and independents to use the technology that's available to them so that they can compete in an otherwise 
unfair playing field with obviously big multinationals with huge, uh, you know, sort of marketing and PR budgets. Yeah. Very good. I'm, I'm just thinking back to sort of 1995 and what, what the internet looked like in those days. It was, uh, it was dial-up, right? So It was. Yeah, dial-up connections. And <laughs> I, there's a slide I use um, in when I'm delivering um, talks, a keynote address, and it says um, internet connection, um, connect to the internet in minutes. And it's, you know, that's the, that's the selling point. <laughs> Yeah, I still remember the uh, the dial up noise that um, NTL used to make back in the in the in the late nineties. Wonderful. Yeah. But um, yeah, so I mean, you, you talked about it a little bit, but I mean, you've been writing about technology since the earliest days of the web, so you, you've pretty much seen it all when it comes to tech innovation, disruption, and, and those kind of things. But as we're, we're, in a, we're in a difficult time, that's putting a you know too fine a point in it, an understatement of the year. But as we hopefully emerge from the pandemic, how do you kind of see the role of tech? In, in changing the world of work? I think technology has been changing the world of work for, as I said, a, you know, a good couple of decades. And I think there's been a lot of people who've been resistant to those changes, in partly for financial reasons. A lot of companies have got legacy infrastructure that you know hasn't paid for itself yet. So we can't get something new. And of course they haven't realized that if you if you chucked out the old inefficient technology and got new technology in it, you know, you could pay for it a lot quicker. Um, I think what the pandemic did was it, um, for those people who were already on a digital journey, it really stress tested their uh, what they put in place in ways that were quite extraordinary. And, you know, you had to, as a, as a good business leader at that point, you had to be able to look at what you've done and admit your failures and admit where it wasn't going wrong. And I think, you know, for people who were already on that digital enterprise journey, it was a real kind of review of where they were going and, and a good um, a good sort of slap um, on the behind to uh, get them moving in the right direction. Um, for those, obviously, that weren't on that digital journey, it's been crushing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's been a lot for people to cope with, not only the, the stress of having to set up hybrid working scenarios and get everybody connected, but they're dealing with that at the same time as they're dealing with having their kids at home being homeschooled and, you know, having to work around their pets and deliveries arriving and stuff like that. So I think, you know, it's really been a very, very tough time for people who weren't on that journey. Um, But coming out the other side of it, we're in a really good and unique position in history because the whole world, 4 billion people were asked to stay at home and work and they had to make it work. It wasn't a choice thing. It wasn't, oh, you know, you should get into technology. It was like, if you don't get into technology, you can't work. So they had to do it. And people like my father, who was a committed Luddite, actually realized that it wasn't as hard as they thought it was going to be. And they've started to look at other ways that they can expand into the world of tech. So I think it's really brought the world onto the same page in a very quick way in in we couldn't have done this any other way even if i'd stood outside computer training centers handing out 50 pound notes to all and sundry you couldn't have got this many people on board collectively so i think as the dust settles from the pandemic and we start to see now more solid plans and strategies around hybrid working around managing their people digitally around creating that culture of the workplace inside the you know when your stack is your office um, as opposed to a physical building, 
Um, I think we are going to see tremendous benefits from having been through this. Mm. But I am known as a as an infuriatingly optimistic. So, <laughs> yeah. Well, that, that that perfectly leads me into my next question, which is I'm throwing in as a bit of a wild card from the from the ones we might have talked about before. But you know, I think there's there's positivity and there's there's negativity when it comes to the impact of technology on, say, for instance, something like the jobs market, for example, where a lot of people talk about you know, the rise of the robots, they're going to come and take over and steal all our jobs. I mean, how do you, somebody who's been involved in the tech sector for as long as you have, how do you, view, and, and obviously also very, very positive in your standpoint and outlook, how do you view the the rise of tech and how it's going to impact the, uh, the labour market more broadly? Well, people do tend to, when people are fearful of something and they don't understand it, which many people are of technology, they tend to look at the downsides, right? And they, they go, oh, this is, this is the negatives that can happen. And that's all they focus on. And so you see people talking about the use of, you know, bots and automation and AI to replace humans. But if you look at those same places where we're looking to use them, for example, in customer services, right? You're, if you call, call up a call center with a cut uh, for on a customer helpline, you're likely to get a bot first um stage you may not even realize you've got a bot and very often these bots are actually um, managed by a person so they're assisted robotics so you you have a scenario where the ai will deal with the complaint or the or the query until such a point as their percentage level of confidence that it's accurate drops below a certain level and then it just gets handed off to a human um, and that seems to you as the, the user, like I've seen this conversation, you wouldn't even know you've been handed off to a user. So I think, and, and you look at those areas, there is so much more demand now on customer services, the volume of people, the speed at which we, we demand a response to our queries, the accessibility, people want 24-7 access when they've got questions about what, they, what they've bought or what they, the service that they're having from you. And you can't deliver that currently without the use of bots and automation. So people worry that they're going to lose their jobs. Their jobs will change, but the economy is growing. We've got this, you know, ever increasing demand on the resources. And you ask any business leader if, if they've got 100% of the staff that they need and they're looking for, and I think you'll find that they say no. So it's not like, you know, people are going to be turfed out and not have work to do. And you look at um, automation, I've been looking at the finance sector this week, actually, and speaking um, at an event, and you look at the impact that bots can have on a profession where they are desperately short of human resources. Mm -hmm. You know, there's lots of people unable to fill the roles, and computers can do things like, you know, things with numbers and percentages. They're much more reliable than humans. They are, Gartner did a report uh, or did a study and they said that a, a, um, a robotic process automation bot can, it will cost one third the amount of an offshore employee and one fifth of the amount of an onshore employee and can do the work of 30 people. Um, so when you look at that equation, it seems kind of crazy that we're not using it more and we're going to see more and more um particularly finance um turning to these kinds of industries uh, to these kinds of technologies so yes people worry that they're going to be replaced by robots 
but there is enough work. The work will change. Um, it's down to employers to make sure that they offer the right upskilling and you know, sort of movement within their organisation, um, and be smart about how they manage their people. So instead of you know making layoffs in one area and then having to recruit people in a new area because you've got a completely new field of you know coming up because of new technology, making those connections and and finding people who want to make that switch within your own organisation because you've already got that loyalty to your brand um, and it, you know sort of familiarity with the environment and the products and services. So. It's, you know, it is, things are going to change. Um, but if you look back at the Industrial Revolution, um, it was um, Henry Ford that actually instituted a two-day weekend. Um, until then, workers were, they would have Sunday off for um, for their um, religious activities. Uh, but in general, people worked on Saturday and Henry Ford instituted the two-day weekend because he wanted people buying cars. He wanted people going out, doing stuff, buying cars, spending money in the economy. And so we got the two-day weekend. So who's to say at some point in the next you know, 50 to 100 years, we're not going to start having three-day weekends because we can. And yeah. people are stressed and they work too hard. And, you know, we're, we're constantly connected now with our, our smartphones to our work. So even, for a lot of people, unless you're sort of a, you know, a blue-collar worker and you clock out and that's done, for, for many people... It's really a question of you are connected to the notion of your job 24-7. So maybe we do need three days a week off or even four days a week off in order to recharge our batteries sufficiently to, to do our jobs properly. And with automation, it may be possible that we can do that without anybody losing any profit or you know the, the economics not working. I wanted to get your thoughts, well, you know, again, just somebody who's seen it all, really, the on some of the trends that are coming through, you touched on AI and you know machine learning a little bit earlier, but um, as somebody with a finger on the pulse, what are you seeing in terms of the emerging tech and what should what should organizations, not just sort of consumers, but what should businesses be thinking about for the, the technology stack of the future? Um, I think when we're talking futurology, it's kind of a bit of a fool's game because something comes along and blows everything out of the water. So I think for, you know, if you're looking at it from a business business perspective, what am I, what do I need to invest in and what are the steps that I need to take? That the answer to that begins with some really honest questions of yourself about what it is you're trying to achieve. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, one of these speakers, you, you mentioned the, the the industry insights we've been preparing for this uh, this event um, this week, and one of the speakers um, said something which um, was really um, resonated with me. And he said a lot of the changes that they have to make now um, are they require an intellectual leap. Um, you've almost got to sort of rip up the plan that you had. And of course, if you're, if you're a small business or, a, you know, sort of the owner of a business and it's a family business and you've established it, that could be a really scary thing to do to sort of just throw out the rule book and, and get a new one, particularly if you've got in investment in infrastructure, which, you know, as I said before, hasn't yet paid for itself. You've got to admit to yourself and to your investors and your shareholders that that equipment is never going to pay for itself. And so we may as well just boot it now and start moving forwards. And if you don't at this stage, then you are going to, you're already being left behind, to be honest with you, in the market. Um, in terms of particular technologies, the interesting things to look at is going to continue to be 
AI. Um, blockchain is something which I know, you know, everyone grabs their heads and goes, oh, God, don't talk about cryptocurrency. Uh, but blockchain is a lot more than cryptocurrency. And it's actually really good for contracts and, um, you know, sort of legal, traceable steps, you know. So if you if you want to agree um, you know, a, a group of processes with a group of people and you're not all connected perhaps by the same company, then, you know, it's great. They, they're using in Dubai, the government is using it for property contracts and stuff like that. So I think blockchain is definitely one to, to stay on top of. And um, automation, automation. But, and also I think it, it's, as we talk about digital transformation and digital acceleration now, we, we start to speak less about technology as a platform and more about the culture mm. of that, the use of that, you know, the culture of accepting and being part of that technology ecosystem. So again, I think, and it's, you know, it's perhaps not the answer you would expect from a tech reporter. What part of technology, the future of technology, should we be most concerned about right now? It's the culture of the people you have in your firm and how you share with them the mission and the reason, you know, if it, and, and we're still in that transitional phase where a lot of people are still, you know, they fear that technology is going to replace them. Uh, they are worried that they're going to get it wrong. They're worried they're going to get it look, you know, particularly older workers tend to feel concerned that they're going to look silly in front of the younger people who seem to get it, and, you know, and I don't. And, you know, there are all these kind of social um, and cultural aspects to making those steps now. And I think a lot of the platforms that we see that allow you to manage your people, they allow you to really integrate the culture of what you're trying to do into the, the workflow of it. And so I would say that I would say, look at the cultural things, look at the human element of the technology that you're trying to use and focus on how you can make the best digital culture within your company that gives you that same loyalty, that same sort of warmth that you like, you know, in your physical office, how can you translate that into your, into your technology stack? Yeah, no, really interesting. And you, again, as you were talking there, I was thinking about, you know, that, that idea of ripping up the rule book and you know, really embracing dis disruptive technologies. And I was thinking back to my question was actually going to be to you, did you did you see any of the big disruptions coming? And I mean, in terms of when I think of you think of brands, you know, I'm showing my age here a little bit, but, you know, our price, for example, or um, Blockbuster, you know, for the video, right? You, you know, it seems absolutely obvious now that, you know, that digital media would come in and just completely rip up the rule book. But, you know, at the time, I mean, did anybody really foresee that? I think, and I think in, in 10 years, five years time, we're going to be sitting here again around, you know, and wondering how we didn't, to see the next iteration of, of disruption coming through so you'll recognize the people who can um who are able to spot those disruptions because they're the ones living in the the three million pound mansions <laughs> on park lane <laughs> yeah and silicon valley elite as well who managed to uh, to get ahead of the curve but yeah you've um you've, you've probably seen most of those disruptions coming through i i wanted to change tact a little bit because um i know you know, reading a lot of the stuff that you do online that you've covered uh, and we covered it as well at Workday quite a lot in our blogs, but, you know, the topic of, of women technology. Um, and I wanted to get your thoughts on that, you know, in terms of, uh, you know, women in science and technology. Are we making enough progress on that, not just in the UK, but, you know, more, more broadly from a global perspective? And, and what more should we be doing to encourage more women to move into the IT sector? 
progress in this has always been infuriatingly stagnant, um, in my opinion. I've been evangelizing, um, you know, hardcore evangelizing for women in technology and promoting um, science and engineering as, as subjects that girls should be interested in for many years, you know, maybe 15, 20 years. And in that time, we've made no progress in terms of actual numbers. Um, what we have made progress in is the visibility of the problem and people talking about it. And then, you know, people get very frustrated that we're not making any sort of really remarkable progress in balancing that gender gap. We are starting to see now girls, more girls come in through school and wanting to study it. Um, but they do, you know, that does dwindle as you get into the workplace. And then certainly as you climb up the promotional ladder again, um, that dwindles. And there are so many different um, societal impacts on that. Uh, you know, there is a lot of, um, there's a lot of baggage that we have with, you know, hundreds and hundreds of years of ingrained um, sort of mentality that a woman's place is looking after the family and the homemaker in the kitchen, the man's the breadwinner. So there's still an awful lot of that, that even though we intellectually know that that is wrong now, the way that most people act, because it's unconscious bias, right? It's, it's called unconscious bias for a reason. Um, and even I myself, I did an unconscious bias test. It was about six years ago. I was going to um, I was doing a talk about um, the topic and I was looking for some resources that people would use to test themselves because there are unconscious bias tests. And before I recommended this one test from a university, I can't remember which, I thought, oh, I'll just do the test just to make sure, you know, that I'm recommending something legitimate. And of course, I, I was initially shocked to find that I suffer from unconscious bias um, you know, in my reaction to names and, uh, you know, and, and whether they were male and female and stuff like that. And so it, it gives you a score, basically. It, it times your answers so you can't game the system. Um, and But then when I sat back, I thought, well, of course I suffer from unconscious bias because I'm a woman in my 50s and I grew up, you know, through the 70s and 80s. I was at school. I went to a very stuffy girls' school. Um, and although I kind of bucked against the system in many ways I still accepted that that was the system and so I still have that worldview so you know if you're if you're from a certain generation you will be constantly fighting the urge to um to sort of display these unconscious bias um and gender bias tendencies and I think the first step is being aware of it and aware of your potential to do it um, and then, you know, being able to check yourself as you're doing it. Um, it's, it is also one of these things we've become so intellectually aware of the issue and trying proactively to combat it for a good couple of decades that everyone's like, why haven't we fixed it already? Well, we're talking about hundreds and hundreds of years of ingrained bias. So, we can't fix it in two decades. Uh, I genuinely think, give us another sort of three or four generations when the kids who are at school now, who are getting equal exposure, you know, they're being brought up in a climate of being acutely aware of the gender imbalances um, and, and biases. And I think kids today are so much more empathetic than we ever were because they're so much more connected with the world you know they've got devices in their hands where they can learn about uh, you know 
colonies of minks having to be put to sleep in another country. That's once something my, my niece was like, oh, these minks, they got COVID and they all had to be put to sleep. And they're in Croatia. Of course, what, you know, how would she know about that if yeah. she was a kid when I was a kid? So I think kids feel the problems of the world more. And I think that, that, that when they are the people who are running the companies and the governments, uh, you know, and all the rest of it, then I think that, that it will naturally solve itself i don't know that we can be doing too much more and i know that's probably going to get me hung drawn and quartered by some, some people online but i think there is so much proactivity going on um you know i think if everybody's doing their their best just to be aware of it and to encourage where they can um young girls and, and, and young boys as well you see this is the thing what we, we can't do is we can't walk into schools and start being exclusionary against boys because we want more girls because then you know you start to have the reverse problem um so you know we, it's really just a question of giving access to people and letting them make their own journeys and their own choices and then all of us being mindful about our interactions with young people that we don't pass on our biases. Uh, but I think we are plagued with them. You know, we're, it's, it's terminal, terminal unconscious bias. Yeah. Um, you just need to, you just need to pay really hard attention that you don't pass it on to the next generation. Yeah, no, that's a, that's a great, again, a really, really thorough answer. I think on a very, very crude level, that's not anywhere as near as detailed or, you know, um, contextual as yours. I'm thinking of those bias again. And when I was at school, it, you know, technology was was seen as geeky, wasn't it? You know, the, people didn't have devices in their hands. Computers were not the norm. And if you're into technology or coding or programming or whatever it was in, in those days, you're a bit of a geek. And it, it wasn't seen as something that boys, you know, never mind, you know, girls at that point, you know, women in tech, it was, it was just something that wasn't done. So as you say, eradicating those stereotypes and those unconscious bias are just it's going to take longer than, than 20 years until they sort of disappear. But um, it's just, it's so, so pleasing to see the the progress that's being made. I think a lot of it's come from the US, this this attitude towards coding and getting kids involved in tech a lot earlier. But um, yeah, long may it continue because it's uh, mm. it certainly needs to happen, doesn't it? Well, it's funny, you know, because I'm a gamer still, um, you know, and people, I'm 53, I'm not ashamed to admit it. Um, and I meet people socially at events and stuff and, and they are surprised that I am a 53 year old female gamer. It's like, I'm a, some kind of an unusual beast, but actually if you take um, uh, the current statistics for the UK gaming market, um, it's almost 50% women and there are more over forties gaming than there are under 18s. So, our perception of gaming and gaming is a great gateway as well. I mean, this, if you, if you want your child to be interested in technology, get them into gaming. Cause I promise you, um, you know, they're playing Minecraft. They're going to start being interested in how to use the technology so that they can play their game. That's, that's what happened to me. I wanted to play the game elite on the BBC micro. And I had to learn how to operate the computer in order to play the game. Yeah. Um, and you have, you know, when you, in the day-to-day -day operation of technology, you end up having to troubleshoot it because it breaks down. The wall, oh, the Wi-Fi's gone, and I'm in the middle of the game, or whatever. Yeah. So, you know, if you give them access to gaming and encourage that, and particularly girls, because parents are always like, "Oh, but gaming's so such an aggressive and horrible place for 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 females and girls to hang out." 
never in my whole life have I experienced a problem socially in gaming that I couldn't walk away from. You know, Mm -hmm. it's not, it doesn't have to be this war zone for women. Um, Yes, you may find some people try to use your gender as a weapon against you and you go, well, that's work because it doesn't make any difference. So, you know, as long as you are not, not injured by that, then they, they can't hurt you with it. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I, I thoroughly recommend it. And And parents, if you don't really get on with technology and you've got a child who's interested to learn gaming, do it with them. There's some great, you know, sort of multiplayer games, cooperative games. You can learn together. You can spend quality time together. And you might find you enjoy it. Yeah. No, it's a great, it's a great call. I'd, I'd love to go down the gaming hole um, at, at some point, but I'm, I'm really conscious of your time. Um, <laughs> yeah. so I do have to ask you. I can't have you on the podcast without asking about Ferret YouTube, uh, you, you TV, because my nephew uh, Oscar, he absolutely loves it. So, t- tell me a bit about that as a content creator as you are. I think the concept's just just brilliant. Tell me about uh, was it just lockdown boredom? And, <laughs> yeah. Or where, well, yeah. Where are you next? <laughs> so it's it's uh, ferrettube.live is the URL if anyone wants to check it out, and there you will find um, my beautiful ferret run um, at just streaming twenty four seven the exterior run. Um, so lockdown hit, all of my work doing events kind of vanished instantly it all came back in in various different ways for virtual stuff but for a a period of a few months I literally went from having a full diary to having an empty diary and going well what am I going to do with myself and I went on a walk and and I I already was a streamer I'd done some game streaming many years ago but I didn't really want to get into game streaming because that's what I do for fun and I didn't want to make that into my work yeah um so I was like what can I stream that people will want to watch um, and then I went for a walk and um, I found an abandoned ferret um, and it was very poorly. And I scooped it up in my jacket and I brought it back home, phoned the RSPCA. While I was waiting for them to come out, I did some research about what I might be able to feed it or offer it to make it more comfortable. And I was like, ferrets are super cute. They're like dogs. They, you can train them um, and they are quiet. They're a bit smelly. Um, but um, they're absolutely adorable and really intelligent and fun to watch. So I decided I was going to get ferrets and put them on YouTube. Um, originally started, I built the run inside. So there's like a, a five camera setup inside. They've got an inside cage um, uh, with a camera in their sleep box and a camera on the feed area and a camera on their water area. Uh, and then the, the big camera outside. Um, and was streaming that and and one of the reasons as well as sort of giving me something to do and I learned a lot about networking and you know setting it all up and everything um, it also um, I do education work um, with Teen Tech which is Maggie Philbin's charity and we we, uh, inspire children to um, think about science engineering and technology and careers and I was getting a lot of feedback from the schools and, and, and the teaching roles that I do that it's, you know, from teachers saying it's so hard to engage in a flat screen and keep people focused on you. Cause um, you know, they've got so many other distractions around them outside that outside of your vision as well. So you can't even sort of, you know, gauge when they might be getting distracted. Um, and so I find found that actually just using the ferrets as a tool to, you know, hey, me and the ferrets, a bit like Gordon the Gopher, right? When they got that in the BBC broom cupboard on BBC, CBBC. So you get this, it's like using a puppet. Um, and if you can 
bring them into the conversation in a relevant way. Um, you know, like when I was talking about online safety for um, for um, Safer Internet Day with Childnet, and I was like, you know, me and the girls love surfing the internet. Of course, we've got to be really careful. But of course, you know, so I've got a ferret here. Yeah. So people are looking at me. They're not looking around their own house. Um, yeah. So that was kind of one of the one of the ways that I used it. Uh, but it was also I think I would have gone completely mad if I hadn't ended up doing that. I was I was actually spending far too much time just playing video games and, and I needed something more productive to do. <laughs> yeah. Well, I can I can testify. It's, it's really interesting. I mean, I could. I have at, at times watched it for far too long, but um, it is really interesting. So listeners should definitely check that out when they get a sec. But we've um, we've certainly spanned the genres. We've gone from from ferrets to to AI and uh, women in tech. So I just wanted to uh, to thank you. I mean, that's all we've got time for on the Workday podcast today. But you've, you've been brilliant, Kate, and it's it's been such a uh, an honour for me because I'm a huge fan of of Click and, and of yours. So thanks so much for for giving us your time and being here today. Oh, thank you so much. And I hope that some of the listeners will join us for the Industry Insights because we're going to have some really fantastic conversations. I'm uh, really looking forward to it. So hopefully we'll see some of them there. Yeah, that'll be brilliant. Just a quick reminder to our listeners that Kate was talking around there. It's Workday Industry Insights. That's on November the 18th. And you can register at workday.com forward slash industry insights. Until next time, thanks for listening and have a great workday.